The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Think that Robert or Brian are, you know, going to tell me for sure. They probably would, do, you know, I, I, not too, you know. So if I'm shouting, just I'm okay. I just can't hear that well. So there you go. I'm old. What can I say? Um, Mark 8, we've got a great text. Mark 8 is an incredible chapter of Scripture. I commend it to you as a, a real um, like a instruction for discipleship. From top to bottom, it is, it is so very, very good. I just want to introduce one part of the passage we're going to be working on together this morning, and it begins in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He said this plainly. Well, my prayer is that as we complete Mark 8 this morning, that our our vision of Jesus, that admittedly is often so very blurred, uh, might become clear as crystal, that we would see Jesus clearly as he is presented in the scriptures through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as he is presented here at his table in the bread and in the cup, and that as we see Jesus with clarity, we will also see him in his determination. In his determination. He was determined to do the will of his Father. It was his great delight. But even though he was greatly determined, uh, it did not then reduce his compassion. Have you ever met determined people and they tend to run over you? Right? That wasn't Jesus. Jesus was fully determined. He delighted to do the will of his Father, but he drew people in to the joy through his compassion. And, and of course, then the, the aim or the hope is that uh, we who always need his help to uh, do the will of the Father will be helped by him even this morning. Even this morning. Why are we here in this place? If not, then to be served and ministered to by Jesus who fed 4,000 people plus women and children, and who is still feeding us today because our souls should be hungry. We need to be nourished. We need to be strengthened so that we might worship and glorify Jesus. For he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. He is risen. Now we talked last week at the top of Mark 8 about a priority discipleship concern that Jesus had for his disciples, and ostensibly for us as well. Do, do you, everything that Jesus has com, some concerns about your discipleship? <laughs> he has a lot of concerns about mine, I'm telling you. And uh, I'm prompted about those things every day. The concern Jesus identifies is called uh, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And, and we kind of worked on that phrase last week, and, and, you know, it's, it's a little, like, outside of our scope. We don't think about that, like, oh, my discipleship problems is leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. 
But the idea of leaven, very simply, is that it is an influence that spreads and it kind of crowds out what should be influencing us. And what Jesus must have detected in his disciples was that his call to faith was being influenced in their lives more by the Pharisees and Herod than by him. That, that the call of faith that Jesus was placing to his disciples was getting crowded out by the, the Pharisaical system of religion or by the concerns of the house of Herod. You might remember last week, they're in the boat. Jesus is warning them about this. And what are they talking about? Bread. Thank you, Charlene. Yeah, they're talking about bread. And you remember, uh, remember what my dad said to me often? You know, your mind's over there, but the problem's right here. <laughs> well, that's what Jesus was saying to them. You know, you're worried about bread. I just fed 4,000 people. What you worried about bread for? The problem's here. I'm talking to you about something important. I'm talking to you about your discipleship. And so Mark tells us that he then takes them to the region and the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And uh, he does this so that he asks them a question. Now, I don't have time this morning to talk about all the significance of Caesarea Philippi and its geography, except to say Jesus um, didn't just randomly go there. There was a reason he went there, and there was a reason he asked this particular question in this particular place, because it was a place of authority. And in this question, we're going to, or in this place, I should say, we're going to have three truths that are really big truths that are going to be revealed. Now, all three truths are important. Well, as we're giving triplets this morning, but one truth is really super important to get, and the one that follows it equally important to get, and the third one that follows also super important to get, and they're all together, and I'm just telling you, some of you have been to reveal parties, right? You know what those things are? They're getting way out of control. Like the sooner that ends, the better off I am just because I'm old and cranky. But it's just like those things are getting way out of control. But these three things, these truths that are revealed, man, I, I hope they just grab us. I hope they just grab us in like a new and fresh way, ignite our discipleship, and bring us kind of, you know, back into a place of spiritual renewal in our lives. But... We have to be aware of the people and the systems that are shaping us. We have to be aware of the people and systems that are shaping us. Because if they shape us with, with greater force, then these truths, these truths are going to get crowded out. And then we're, just, then we're just doing church. So... These discipleship concerns come back to us this morning. So here's the first truth. As they're in this region of Caesarea Philippi, uh, in verse number 27, Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And uh, they told him. They said, well, people say you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. And others one of the prophets. Hey, if somebody said to me, hey man, you're, you're preaching ministry, you know, it's like, and they name some, you know, influential preacher, like I go like, 
wow, that's, you're wrong, but okay, thanks. I'll, I'll take the, 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 the words, fine. Um, but this isn't what Jesus is after. Jesus isn't here to be compared to the human voices. Did Jesus have a powerful prophetic ministry? Yes. And it would be easy to see why people would have thought that he was like John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the great prophets. But that is not an adequate answer as to who the identity of Jesus is. And so he presses his disciples further when he asks them in verse 29, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, you know, he, he answers correctly, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You know, by not correcting Peter, we can conclude then that Jesus understood himself to be exactly who Peter confessed him to be. For to take that title to himself was indeed blasphemous. You might remember on the night when Jesus is betrayed and took off the trial, they say to him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And he says, well, you just said I am. And then what was the accusation against him was blasphemy which under Jewish law is punishable by death. And so Jesus doesn't look at Peter and go like, oh, hold on, Peter, wait, you're, you're taking it too far. No, I'm not him. No, Jesus doesn't correct Peter, which is to say that he embraces then his identity, who he is. He knew himself to be exactly who Peter confessed him to be. You know, the New Testament often combines then the name Jesus, that's the name the angels gave him, which means Jehovah saves, with the title Christ. And when you read that, it's not like Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. It's Jesus is his name and his title is Christ, which means anointed one. From the, from the Old Testament, hope it would be Messiah, the, the anointed servant that God would send not only to save his people from their sins, but to save the world, yea, to save Israel and to save the world. To claim to be the Christ would be a claim of Messiahship, an anointing that God would give. And so thus far, in, in eight chapters of Mark's gospel, uh, the evidence has been piled up, and now Mark is asking you, the reader, to look at the evidence and you have to either believe it or you have to reject it. And if Jesus is just a prophet, then you know what? He's just a prophet. You can follow what he says or you don't have to worry about it. But if he is God's anointed one, if he is the one through whom salvation comes, and he is the one through whom God's anointing comes, then to reject him is to reject life. To reject him is to reject hope. To reject him is to reject a future with God and the glorious future to come in the eternal fellowship. So Mark has piled up this evidence. He wants you to read it. He wants you to look at it. He wants you to make a decision. Jesus cannot be only a great prophet. He is either God's Messiah or he's not. He cannot be just a miracle worker. He cannot just be a friend to the outcast or a friend to the poor he has to be either all of it or he's not a savior and what we need is what those disciples needed we need a savior who can give us 
the imperishable bread that leads to life. As cool, as exciting, as wonderful it would have been to get a free lunch, you know, on the hillside, if you're not believing in Jesus as the Christ, then you're not receiving the food that is imperishable, the food that leads to eternal life. And the question I have for us, then, are we being formed as disciples, then, who desire the imperishable bread that leads to life, or do we simply just want Christianity as a cultural thing, it's nice to live kind of in a quasi-Christian nation, and we can argue and fight over a few things about that, and have Jesus as a moral teacher, you know, the golden rule, and all of that stuff? Or is he the Christ, the anointed one of God, who then promises life? How are you being influenced today? Is the actual truth of Jesus being crowded out of your life by pedestrian concerns, bread or the cost of fuel or whatever it might be? Or are you being drawn into Christ who, as we said so often, is right the hope of glory? He's the hope of glory. But how will it come? Well, this brings us to the second truth that is revealed and that is, to be the Christ will have an exacting cost. The truth then that follows, that is revealed, is the cost that Jesus, the Christ, will have to bear. It, it begins in verse 31, when he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The disciples, prior to coming into a discipleship with Jesus, would have been raised in the synagogue system of the Jews to have believed in and wanted a Messiah. That, that's, that would have been ingrained in their, their lives in the local synagogue. But they would have been trained to think about a Messiah who would come in power and deliver people from the external oppression from the external issues of their life, Rome and overtaxation and, uh, dare I say, taxation without representation, although that's not in the Bible, but, you know, kind of this would have been their external concerns, how Rome is oppressing them. That's what they would have been taught in their local synagogue. Uh, along with that, there would have been a vision of Messiah who would deliver Israel from her enemies so that they could freely be taught the law and have their lives shaped around the law. They would no longer be harassed, you know, by other nations. The Messiah would ensure then the freedom for them to go to the temple to worship, for them to bring their sacrifices, for them to have uh, within their community the peace, the shalom that they so desired. At this point, the disciples would not have understood a Messiah to be someone who would go to his death. And in going to his death would save them from the actual problem, the problem within. That's where we were a few weeks ago. The problem within, right? As, as uh, Jesus said, it's not what a person takes into themselves that defiles them. It's what is in them and comes out of them. That's what defiles them. And so what Jesus is beginning to tell them is that as the Son of Man, 
He is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed, and then he's going to be raised from the dead. And this would have been shocking, and this would have been scandalous because inherent in those truths is this. Jesus is going to do something on the inside of their lives that they would not have envisioned a Messiah to do. They thought by conforming to the external issues of the law, they would be right in the sight of God. But none of them had figured out how to deal with the guilt and shame within them. What Jesus promises in his salvation is to not only deliver us from the powers without us, but the power that is in us, not only death, but also the principle of sin that we can be freed from through his death, through his suffering, and then in the power of his resurrection. Can you imagine that a Messiah who not only fulfills the inward and outward demands of the law, but by doing so then is able to transform you and me from the inside out? The anger, the bitterness, the shame, the guilt, the jealousy, the envy, the lust, the covetousness, that a power working from within us can destroy the principle of sin so that we then live an external life of joy and peace and happiness and satisfaction in Jesus doing all of the good things that we need to do as God's people. Well, this is what Jesus is talking about. And we're told that he says this plainly. I'm glad Mark inserts this in there. You know, sometimes you read a parable in the Bible and some of them are fairly easy to pick out and understand. And others are like, well, what is he talking about? I mean, I have to go to commentaries and I have to call my friends and say like, hey, I don't know, what's he talking about here? And we still aren't sure sometimes. But if you read verse number 31, you don't really need a lot of explanation, do you? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Well, it was plain enough then that Peter feels it necessary to take Jesus off the one side and correct him. That's how plain it was. I mean, you really need to get the picture. Jesus is there, he's teaching, he says these things plainly, and Peter's like, uh-oh, we got a problem. We got a publicity problem. <laughs> we've, given up our, we've given up our fishing trips, we've given up our businesses, we've given up all these things, and you're talking about going to die. Come here, Jesus, come here, i got to have a conversation. Come here, Jesus, we need to talk this over. You can't say stuff like that. It's a publicity problem. You want people to follow you, don't you? I mean, you want people to fill your room, don't you? You can't be talking about this kind of stuff. Mark uses a literary tension, and it begins uh, with the word began there. When in verse 31, what do you have? On, and you can, might imagine a, a, a tug of war. How many of you played tug of war this last week? Did you really zap this last week? No, all right. All right, how many of you have ever played tug of war? All right, okay, how many? Most of us don't now because we want to keep our shoulders in their socket, but some of you kids might be playing tug of war. Imagine a tug of war going on, and on yours, on this side, you got Jesus, and on this side, you got Peter, and the tug of war rope is called the word began. Because Jesus began to teach them. And then what do you have in uh, verse 
number um, 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And so you have this, this tension. Who do you think is going to win? Who do you think is going to win? Well, of course Jesus is going to win. He's Jesus. But how do you think he's going to win? Do you think he's, you know, as omnipotent God, just jerk the rope and say, you idiot, Peter, what do you mean? Just get in my way. Get out of here. No, that's not what he does. You know, you know how Jesus re- relieves the tension? And he, look at verse 33. He turns and he sees his disciples. Now, I, I, listen, this is so important to get. He's over here. Peter's saying, hey, Jesus, you can't be saying stuff like that. Please stop. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. We're not going to let that happen to you. And Jesus is listening to Peter, and then he turns and he looks, and he sees his disciples. That is, he sees what's at stake. He sees what's at stake. The discipleship of his disciples He doesn't turn and look at them and go like, man, I wish I would have put somebody else in charge of this this motley crew. Why, Peter, would you just shut up, you know? That's not what he does. He's over here, and Peter's rebuking him, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he looks at Peter, and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are more concerned about the things of this earth than you are about the things of heaven. In other words, Peter, you got a leaven problem. You got a leaven problem. Bread? This is is so incredibly important to know that Jesus is looking at us today. That he's turning and he's seeing us. And with the same compassion that he had on the crowd at the beginning of chapter 8 when he said, hey, don't send them away hungry. They're going to faint. They're going to die. We need to give them some food. He looks at you. He looks at me. He looks at us today and all of our concerns And he has compassion on us. And he says, hey, don't let the concerns of this world crowd me out. This is incredibly important truth. And we find here then uh, what is revealed is the exacting cost of what Christ had to bear. Do Do you like to be misrepresented? Nobody likes to be misrepresented. But Jesus was being misrepresented. He was more than a prophet. And he had to bear that weight. He had to overcome being discouraged by Peter's words. Have you ever been trying to get something done and just day after day, time after time, people just keep discouraging you? And Jesus has to overcome the discouragement of Peter's words. He has to look at the other disciples and say to himself, they're not going to get it either. They're not going to get it either. But the much Love, son, would not accept the bargain presented. Which in many ways is no different than the bargain that was presented three years earlier in the wilderness when the actual voice of Satan, the actual Satan himself, tempts Jesus in the wilderness. But here it's just sounding a whole lot like Satan. But he would not accept the bargain presented because his mind was always set on the things of God. His mind was never crowded out by the things of man. Can you imagine? Hey, I still haven't found the church stapler. I've been thinking about this way too much for way too long. But I just can't let go of it. Hey, we bought another stapler. Move on, Prater. What is the problem with you, you know? Well, what's your stapler? 
What's your stapler? Jesus turns and he looks at us. He turns and he looks at us. He would not, he himself would not be leavened by Pharisees and Herod. He would not be influenced by them. His great delight was doing the will of his Father who is in heaven. And he wants us to have that delight as well. And so here's the third truth that is revealed, and that is the cost of our own discipleship. The cost of our own discipleship. He calls to the crowds in verse 34. He says to them, If any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cost of discipleship now comes to disciples. To take up the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus and follow him. The victory that Messiah wins then is an invitation for disciples to take up his life. For he not only died and suffered for our sins so that we could be saved, but he was raised from the dead on the third day so that we might live. And in living in him, we take up his cross, we follow after him. And then, and then he says this, it seems then that he anticipates the objections to come. And I see four objections then that follow this invitation. The first one is in verse 35. What about my life? Hey, it's my life. I only get to do this life one time. What about me? Verse 35. Because I'd, like I'd like to control my life. I'd like to try to save my life. I'd like to be my own savior, by the way. I've battled for 63 years trying to be my own savior. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I just keep battling. But then the second objection that we see, and, and again, we all share is, well, what about the things I can gain from this world? I mean, there's just so much in this world to enjoy. There's so much in this world to do. If I take up your cross and follow you, what does that mean? How am I going to enjoy the world? And, and then the third objection in verse number 38, you know, can't I just kind of be half-hearted about it? You know, I'll show up on Sunday, I'll give a little bit of money, you need some stuff done, I'll do it, but you know, you know, I got stuff going on, friends and whatever, they're not going to, can I just be half-hearted about it? And then the fourth objection shows up in verse number one of the next chapter, chapter what's the potential cost? What's the potential cost? These objections are as real for us as for the people who first heard these words. You know, I think in our church we, we have such a wonderful age range and a lot of young people growing up, and I think we got a lot of college kids right now. These are, these are such important questions for you to grapple with as you start out in life. You know, the way Jesus answers these objections is filled with compassion, filled with mercy, filled with love. They're blunt words. They're blunt words for sure. He answers the first objection, what about my life? He says, well, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life for my sake and the gospel, there you're going to find it. 
You say, well, what does that mean? Well, start in the book of Acts and just read to the book of the Revelation, and then you'll find what that means. And it'd take you a couple hours, but you should do it. So, well, what does that mean? To give my life up for the gospel. To find my life. What does it mean? There it is. It's, get in the Bible, it'll tell you. His, his answer to the, the, to the second objection, you know, what about the things I can gain from the world? He says, well, if you try to gain what is elusive, what is passing, you're going to lose it. And in the end, you're going to lose your own soul. You're going to lose what is actually most valuable, your soul. You may gain the elusive things of this world and be able to hold on to them for just a little bit, but the, the, the emptiness inside will not be answered. And then you'll go into eternity. And then what? You know, see, I remember growing up hearing this very often. You, see, you, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You know, in, in the day in which we live, when one of the best businesses you can get into is storage. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, if you want to say, is America a Christian nation or not, just look at how much storage facilities we have, and I think we can all conclude we're no longer a Christian nation. Just on that basis alone. And how, I'm not, listen, if you run a storage facility, <laughs> I, I don't have a list of names that I'm working from here, but I'm just saying, you try to gain this world, you'll lose it. Can you be half-hearted about your discipleship? No. It requires full identification with Jesus, Messiah. What you said in your baptism, you're actually expected to live in your discipleship. If you're ashamed of Jesus in this world, he says, I'm going to be ashamed of you. That's blunt. That's blunt. And then this fourth objection, what is the potential cost? Well, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, some are standing here who are going to not taste death. Now, the implication is some are standing here who are going to taste death. But the kingdom of God is coming with power. So the ultimate end is good. The resurrection of Jesus, what we will celebrate and come to gather around and consider this Thursday night, his ascension, exaltation, his enthronement. Oh, I hope you have been planning on being out Thursday night to consider this great doctrine of Jesus and throne. It is so important for Christians to grab a hold of that in a time which is this fleeting and going away. We have actually a Savior enthroned and a Savior who is coming again. The response of Jesus to the potential objections is instructive for us today. A few weeks ago, I said in a sermon that I, that I, struggle, I struggle with the way most Christians practice discipleship I do not believe it is adequate for the day in which we live. It may have been adequate 20 years, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. The way most Christians practice discipleship today is not adequate for today. The world is an ever-increasingly dark place in which we are to shine like lights, but the leavening influence of this world is so great, it is just shoving Jesus out and we're just trying to do the same things we had done before, we need to really reconsider our practices, our discipleship, which is costly. It's rigorous. It takes an investment of time and energy and effort. 
all flowing out of not, not duty, but delight. A delight that says, oh God, your law is written on my heart. I just want to do what you want to do. And I need to have the right influences coming into my life. Mark 8 is from top to bottom all about rigorous discipleship where at the end of it you find your deepest satisfaction in Jesus, the bread that was broken so hungry people can be fed, the one who died so that we can have light, our blindness can be taken away, we can see him clearly for who he is, we'll never shuffle him off to a corner and say, Jesus, slow down, you know, we got a publicity problem. We are willing to say to a room full, half full, or empty, this is the cost of discipleship. And we won't compromise on it. For to follow Jesus is to follow him all the way to his cross. Well, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is still present today. The problem of having our minds somewhere off elsewhere instead of where the actual issue is is still a problem today. But you know what? We still have a Savior looking at us, loving us, caring about us, compassionate towards us, patient with us, breaking bread, blessing us, feeding us with his word through his spirit. And so we worship him today. And as we do, we invite you to say yes to his call. We invite you to say yes to his call. He calls you to himself and he says, come after me, but you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up my cross, and you have to follow me. And the reason, of course, we should do that is because the future is Jesus Christ. The future is Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word to us today, and I'm just so grateful for Mark 8, and, and thank you for the attention of your people today, whether in this room or whenever they or wherever they might be and whatever they might listen. And I pray, oh God, that by your Spirit right now you would work. Again, today may, may be the day of someone's salvation. They may need to call upon you, Lord, for the very first time, taking up your cross. But all of us undoubtedly, oh Lord, need to be renewed. We need a refreshing of your spirit to come. And let this table then refresh us. Let it be a place where we come and we meet together and we say as one body that you are the Christ. You are the bread of life. Your blood poured out cleanses us from all our sins. Well, let me give you a few moments of quietness to pray over these things. You confess your sins. You get yourself ready to celebrate together at the table. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.